0: April Fools. (laughs) And I guess Easter too. Happy Easter, you know. Might as well say that. Uh, Passover. And Passover. Thank you. Anything else? Any other (laughs) holidays? Uh, So with the first uh, day of spring happening recently and April Fools Day, I I wanted to begin with a poem by um, Ryokan, the famous Japanese uh, Zen poet who is um, often referred to as the Great Fool. Uh, so, uh, this poem is called The First Days of Spring, the Sky. So, the first days of spring, the sky is bright blue, the sun huge and warm, everything's turning green. Carrying my monk's bowl, I walk to the village to beg for my daily meal the children spot me at the temple gate and happily crowd around dragging to my arms till i stop i put my bowl on a white rock hang my bag on a branch first we braid grasses and play tug of war then we take turns singing and keeping and keeping a kickball in the air i kick the ball and they sing They kick and I sing. Time is forgotten. The hours fly. People passing point at me and laugh. Why are you acting like such a fool? I nod my head and don't answer. I could say something, but why? Do you want to know what's in my heart? From the beginning of time, just this just this. Ryokan. The other thing that I wanted to share was a brief passage um, that gets at this idea of foolishness. And this is um, this is a, a, a Chapter from a book called *Novice to Master*, and uh, the subtitle is "An Ongoing Lesson in the Extent of My Own Stupidity." And it's by Asoko Morinaga, uh, Naga, who is a, a is a Rinzai Zen teacher um, in Japan. And I forget his dates. He was born. Oh, there we go. He was born in 1925 and died in 1995. So just a few paragraphs from this. This is a chapter called Getting to Know My Own Idiocy. He says, I have heard it said in critical observation of falling in love and getting married that marriage is moving from beautiful misunderstanding into tragic understanding. (laughs) I suppose the people laughing are married. Uh, This phrase sums up certain stages in the process of Zen practice as well. Again, I say uh, that it would not be an exaggeration to characterize my own life up to now as simply a succession of realizations of my own misunderstanding, misunderstanding that was not even beautiful, and a process of getting to know my own idiocy. For a person strong in his cravings, clinging narrow experience and knowledge as the supreme law caught in a ravine between feelings of superiority and inferiority between building and destroying an ideal self-image to uncover one's own misconceptions is a task more easily described than accomplished. There once was a great Chinese man of Zen named Chao Cho. Uh, you guys uh, probably will know him as Joshu when Cho was 50 years old, his master Nanchuan or Nansen, died. After three years of mourning, Cho, at the age of 60, set out on a 21-year-long pilgrimage that took him throughout China. At the age of 80, the extraordinary Zen master Cho settled in a temple called Kuan Yin Yuan, where he guided monks and laypersons in the Dharma until his death at one hundred and twenty years of age, one day a monk in training came to Chao Cho 's temple and inquired, "What is the most solid, most unbreakable thing in the world?" Chao Cho replied, "If you feel like insulting me, go right ahead and insult me as you please. If your initial insults do not suffice, pour on still more abuse." If you want to spit on me, go right ahead and spit to your heart's content. If spitting isn't enough, go and dip up some muddy water and slosh it on, slosh that on me as well. At first glance, the answer may not seem to fit the question. Chao Cho is saying, though, that no matter how much scorn you fling upon it, this unborn Buddha nature which cannot be hurt or sullied, is the soundest thing of all. It may appear that the hearts of some people are easily hurt. In fact, it is merely the affectations, that, the impurities that have been heaped upon the heart, not the pure heart with which people are born that are injured. This is a great book, by the way. I really recommend it. It's an easy read. He, he's, he basically takes up. It's just a autobiography in, in, of sorts. So speaking of Chao Cho, we're going to, uh, for the rest of the time today, we'll look at um, one of the koans um, that Chao Cho, or Joshu, is um, featured in. And this is case number 59 of the Blue Cliff Record, uh, Joshu's Why Don't You Quote It Fully. And it goes like this. It's a short case. A monk said to Joshu, the ultimate way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. If you say a word, that is picking and choosing. So, how do you go about helping people? Joshu said, "Well, why don't you quote that saying and fall?" And the monk said, "I have only this much in mind." And Joshu said, "It is just this: the ultimate way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing." So that's the end of end of the case. And the reason I thought this was an important koan to take a look at is because. Um, Right now, a number of us in the precept study group um, have been um, getting into precepts six and seven, uh, the two two precepts, um, two of the three precepts that have to do with speech. Um, Of course, the first one is not to lie, but to speak the truth. Um, Number six, though, is, uh, let's see, it's not to, um, not to, Praise myself and disparage others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. And number seven is not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. So these three precepts having to do with speech um, arise out of the practice of right speech, which is one of the eight aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so I think this is important because speech is one of these areas that most of us struggle with on some level. It's, I think, one of the most challenging aspects of practice, right speech. Um, the Buddha was pretty clear about speech. He, he um, really outlined pre, um, that right speech is um, abstinence from false speech, from hateful speech, from harsh speech, and from... Just idle chatter. And this koan, though, takes up the topic of right speech. It takes it up in a different way. It takes it. It looks at speech in a different, uh, from a from a more Zen point of view, another angle. And it begins with a monk saying, with quoting a verse from the C.C. Ming, which is the affirming faith chant that we do on Thursday nights here Uh, our version goes, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose when preferences are cast aside the way stands clear and undisguised, but even slight distinctions made set earth and heaven far apart and on it goes so this monk says, "The great way is not difficult for those who uh, do not pick and choose." Um, but isn't but but you know, even saying that isn't that kind of falling short? So so how do you how do you help people? Before we get into the um, the aspect of speech, I just want to say a little bit about this business of picking and choosing on one level we we tend to equate especially in our culture, we equate choice choosing choice with freedom and I've said this here before um, for me personally actually it's it's um, quite the opposite. I find that the more choice I have in something the more um, I struggle. Um, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And the example I've used, because it's true, is when I have gone on many occasions, uh, Well, I used to call it my home away from home when I was a carpenter, which is Home Depot. Right? And, and I would go in there and go to pick a paint color, right? and my God, you know, it's like you're faced with this wall of colors, you know. it just whites alone. I mean, how do you pick a white? There's like, I don't know, a hundred different whites you can choose from. And, and uh, so it becomes overwhelming, this idea of choice. <clears throat> so choice... This is the same thing with practice too. Um, when we've been exposed to lots of different um, Zen centers or or practice centers, Dharma centers, um, or let's expand out from there, um, meditation centers or um, contemplative practice centers, teachers, um, books, um, online resources, we we get exposed to so many. So many different uh, angles that we could take up this practice from. And then we're faced with, the problems we're faced with when we actually sit down, to sit zazen, uh, what do we do? Because, you know, in the back of our head we've got, well, I could do a little metta. Or I could do some, you know, choiceless and awareness. Or I could do some breath practice. Or maybe I'll dip in a little dab of koan work you know, and so most people jump from thing to thing during their time, and this is just spinning our wheels, it really, this is why, one reason why we don't uh, make as much progress as we want to in practice, because we are jumping from thing to thing in our actual sitting practice, so um, you may get tired of me saying this. Uh, but the th- but the thing is, I found that it's really helpful just to, to pick something and stay with it time and time and time again. Um, not just because of this choice issue, but because the more time you spend with a single thing, I think the more you appreciate it. So going back to this monk, so he quotes this line about avoiding picking and choosing. He says, if you say a word, isn't that picking and choosing? So how do you help somebody? How do you help somebody? The question that came to my mind in exploring this is, do words actually help somebody? And <laughs> my answer was, well, it's complicated. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. What, what's, what's coming up in the media is interesting. This phrase, thoughts and prayers, I'm sure you all have heard this, thoughts and prayers. When a tragedy hits like the school shooting in Florida, Politicians, of course, they bring out those canned phrases. Our oh, thoughts are prayers. Thoughts and prayers are with you. Um, I came across an article by uh, A. J. Willingham from CNN, um, and she says she says this about this whole business of thoughts and prayers. She starts. She says this um, sub, this this concept called semantic semantic. Sa- satiation semantic satiation is the phenomenon in which a word or phrase is repeated so often it loses its meaning but it also becomes something ridiculous a jumble of letters that feels alien on the tongue and reads like gibberish on paper thoughts and prayers has reached full semantic satiation In the hours and days after a teenager shot and killed 17 people last week at his formal high school in Parkland, Florida, thoughts and prayers was trending on social platforms. It wasn't the good kind of trending. Among the earnest pleas for social and legislative action were more and more memes and cynical jokes. In one highly shared image, thoughts and prayers, quote, Thoughts and Prayers is imprinted on the side of a garbage truck. Another meme shows an empty van. Excellent news, it reads, the first truckload of your thoughts and prayers has just arrived. The author continues, jokes mere hours after a deadly shooting. To the voices behind the dark humor, the persistence of thoughts and prayers is the real joke. you know this 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 phrase thoughts and prayers um, is not is, is is rings hollow not only uh, because it communicates a kind of passive resignation it, but it also it also just promotes inaction from my point of view it really doesn't do anything And in Zen, we would call this phrase dead words. Words that actually have no spirit, no live activity, no authenticity. So, this monk in this case is asking knowing the limits of words, especially in trying to convey the Dharma, how do we help? It's actually a reasonable question. How do we help? Is our speech helpful? Most, a lot of the time, our words simply exist to fill the space. ask yourself, how much of when we speak do we do so just to fill the space, either to make someone feel comfortable or to make ourselves feel comfortable? A lot of times when we talk, it is in the realm of chatter. You know, I think of how many times we talk through a meal or talk while we're on a beautiful walk, and and we really are completely unaware of the circumstances, the environment that we're in. Sort of life just passes by. Another word for this chatter is jabbering kind of get lost in a stream of consciousness in some of our conversations. Bodhidharma, who is of course the founder of Zen in China, he he's attributed with the uh, saying, Zen is a teaching outside the scriptures not relying on words and letters, but pointing directly to the human heart or human mind and realizing Buddhahood. Words are just words. They have no inherent existence. They have no physicality. They're just stand-ins, representations, or pictures. They're not reality itself. And short of idle chatter, even well-intentioned words there's problems with. There's a, there's a, we're faced with this huge translation problem if you think about it. Even when two, two people speak the same language, we're faced with this. We're faced with, uh, you know, I uh, have an idea and I have to, uh, f- That's get idea gets filtered through my particular experience with my unique history, comes out of my mouth, you listen to it, And then it goes through the filters of your history, your personal personality, your uniqueness. And then you're supposed to understand what it is I'm saying. I mean, a single word is hard enough. If you think about it. You just say the word um, love. What does that mean? Or... emptiness. What does that mean? Um, racism. What does that mean? Anger. So so this just speaking, we fall short. As, as limited as words are, they have a tremendous amount of power to them. They have a tremendous amount of power. We can change people with our words. You know, words can sting, they can traumatize, but they can also send us, uh, they, can, they can be like what we call turning words that, that positively t- uh, turn us in the right direction. They can inspire us. And even though they have no physical form, they certainly can impact the physical world. I mean, they can quicken our pulse, right? They can um, change our breathing. They can stimulate our adrenaline glands. So even though, even as ethereal as words are, they still have a tremendous amount of power. So this koan is important. This question is is authentic that the monk is saying. Joshu himself was known for his words, his ability with words. His style of Zen is known as lips and tongue Zen. It's said that when Joshu spoke, light emitted from his lips. Um, I wanted to share a couple of examples of why he was said to have uh, been so good with words. A very famous one. A new monk came to the monastery. He says, I just arrived. I asked the master to provide me with instruction. Joshu says, have you eaten? Monk says, yes, I have. Joshu says, go wash your bowl. Here's a good one. An official asked Joshu, will the Master go to hell or not? Joshu said, I entered hell long ago. The official said, why did you enter hell? Joshu said, if I don't enter hell, who will teach you? Joshu asked a monk, how many sutras do you read in one day? The monk said, sometimes seven or eight, sometimes ten. Joshu said, oh, then you can't read sutras. The monk said, master, how many do you read in a day? Joshu said, in one day, I read one word. could go on and on with those just beautiful so he says this monk says the ultimate way is not difficult just avoid picking and choosing if you say a word isn't that picking and choosing so how do you help people Joshu said well why don't you quote this saying in full Joshu responds to the monk with a very concise question quote it in full Another way to say that is another translation of that is why don't you say it fully? So what does he mean when he says this? Why don't you say it fully? Uh, um, why don't you say it fully? In today's, of course, Easter, and there's a there's an old uh, story, and I don't know how true it is, but it sounds good regardless. It's a modern story I heard somewhere. I forget where. Um, Apparently there was a dialogue going on, interfaith dialogue in Japan, uh, I believe. And a Zen teacher was talking to some sort of Christian monk, like a, a Jesuit probably, or I don't know, some sort of maybe a Catholic priest. And he asked the priest or monk, he said, what did Jesus say? when he was on the cross. And the priest said, he said, of course he said a number of things, but one of the most important things he said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Zen master teacher retorted back, he didn't say that at all. Oh yeah? What did he say then? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Say it fully. So much of the time we hold back in our life, we don't say it fully. We hesitate and hedge our bets. Because we overanalyze too much. We tend to get caught up in worry about what other people will think. I'm not saying that we don't need to be careful with our speech. Of course, we do need to be careful with our speech. But there's a difference between being careful and hesitating. So, the question that the monk says is, How do we help? And Joshu says, Say it fully. How do you help? Say it fully. That's how you help. Do it fully. Live your life fully. Be present, aware, awake. When we're engaged fully, where the, where is there picking and choosing? When you're engaged 100%, how can there be any concept of picking and choosing? Picking and choosing is simply an idea. But when we're fully engaged, whew, gone. There is no picking and choosing. When we're not grasping after experience, because picking and choosing is simply pushing away or pulling in. When Joshua says to the monk, why don't you quote it fully, the monk says, I only have this much in mind. I only have this much in mind. Now, of course, this can be taken different ways. He could mean, well, I don't really care about the the rest of that verse. You know, it's really long. those who have chanted it here, no, it's really long. (laughs) Right? So why don't you quote it fully? Well, we'll be here for a while. You know? But he could also be coming from a different place altogether. I only have this much in mind. What does that mean? I only have this much in mind. Just this. I only have this. There's nothing else. This is it. This says it all. You know, however you might put that. There's nothing else to quote. Nothing else to quote. So Joshu says, It's just this. The ultimate way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. This is actually one of four koans in the Blue Cliff record that involve this phrase, the same phrase, with Joshua. So, you can be sure that Joshua has said this phrase probably hundreds and hundreds of times. He has repeated this phrase just avoid picking and choosing. But when he says it, he's not quoting. This this quote is from Sosan, the third ancestor. This this affirming faith in mind is from um, our third ancestor of Zen. But when Joshua says it, he's not quoting. Those are his own words. They are live words. Because when we're truly present, we can't quote. Quoting means we're separate. But there's a difference between me and somebody else's words. I don't know how many uh, times I've heard the encouragement through the years, when you're listening to a talk like this, for example, just listen to it as if for the first time, freshly. saying something, just say it as if for the first time. Say it fully. In that way, when we're present, we can't repeat ourselves. We're not bogged down with the weight of the past. Whatever we say, say it freshly. This is Joshua's answer to right speech. So it's not just about being careful, about being precise, or not talking of the faults of others, or not lying, but it's also about speaking directly, lively. So this is this is the other aspect of right speech.